The Orange Yellow Diamond by J. S. Fletcher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 29 Mr. Moriata. Eiskopf was on his guard as soon as he saw that smile. He had had some experience of various national characteristics in his time, and he knew that when an Eastern meets you with a frank and smiling countenance, you had better keep all your wits about you. He began the exercise of his own with a polite bow. While executing it, he took a rapid inventory of Mr. Moriyada. About, as near as he could judge, two or three and twenty, a black-haired, black-eyed young gentleman, evidently fastidious about his English clothes, his English linen, his English ties, smart socks and shoes, a good deal of a dandy, in short, and, judging from his surroundings, very fond of English comfort, and not averse to the English custom of taking a little spirituous refreshment with his tobacco. A decanter stood on the table at his elbow, a siphon of mineral water reared itself close by, a tumbler was within reach of Mr. Yada's slender yellowish fingers. A servant, sir, said Iskoff. Detective Sergeant Iskoff, of the Criminal Investigation Department. Friend of mine, this Sir Mr. Yada, I believe, Mr. Mori Yada? Mr. Yada smiled again, and without rising, indicated two chairs. Oh, yes, he said, in excellent English accents. Pleased to see you. Will you take a chair, and your friend? You want to talk to me? Iskoff sat down, and unbuttoned his overcoat. Much obliged, sir, he said. Yes, the fact is, Mr. Yada, I called to see you on a highly important matter that's arisen. Your name, sir, was given to me tonight by one of the junior house surgeons at the hospital up the street, Dr. Pittery. Oh, yes, Dr. Pittery, I know, agreed Yada. Yes? Dr. Pittery tells me, sir, continued Iskoff, that you know two Chinese gentlemen who are fellow students of yours at the hospital, Mr. Yada. The Japanese bowed his dark head and blew out a mouthful of smoke from his cigar. Yes, he answered readily. Mr. Cheng Li, Mr. Chin Li, oh yes. I want to ask you a question, Mr. Yada, said Iskoff, bending forward and assuming an air of confidence. When did you see those two gentlemen last, either of them? Yada leaned back in his comfortably padded chair and cast his quick eyes towards the ceiling. Suddenly he jumped to his feet. "'You take a drop of whiskey and soda?' he said hospitably, pushing a clean glass toward Iskoff. "'Yes, I will get another glass for your friend, too. Help yourselves, please. Then I will look into my diary for an answer to your question. You excuse me. One moment.' He walked across the room to a writing-cabinet which stood in one corner, and took up a small book that lay on the blotting-pad. While he turned over its pages, Iskoff, helping himself and Melky to a drink, winked at his companion with a meaning expression. "'I have not seen either Mr. Cheng Li or Mr. Chin Li since the morning of the 18th November,' suddenly said Yada. He threw the book back on the desk, and coming to the hearth-rug, took up a position with his back to the fire and his hands in the pockets of his trousers. He nodded politely as his visitors raised their glasses to him. "'Is anything the matter, Mr. Detective Sergeant?' he asked. Iskov contrived to press his foot against Melky's as he gave a direct answer to this question. "'The fact of the case is, Mr. Yada,' he said, "'one of these two young men has been murdered. Murdered, sir.' Yada's well-defined eyebrows elevated themselves, 
but the rest of his face was immobile. He looked fixedly at Eiskov for a second or two. Then he let out one word. Which? According to Dr. Pittery, Chen Li, answered Eiskov. Dr. Pittery identified him. Murdered, Mr. Yara. Murdered. Knifed in the throat. The reiteration of the word murdered appeared to yield the detective some sort of satisfaction, but it apparently made no particular impression on the Japanese. Again he rapped out one word. Where? His body was found in the garden of the house they rented in Mida Vale, replied Eiskov. Molteno Lodge. No doubt you visited them there, Mr. Yada. I have been there, yes, a few times, assented Yada. Not very lately. But where is Cheng Li? That's what we don't know, and what we want to know, said Eiskov. He's not been seen at the hospital since the 20th. He didn't turn up there, nor Chen either, at a class that day. And you say you haven't seen either of them since the 18th? I was not at the hospital on the 19th, replied Yada. He threw away the end of his cigar, picked up a fresh one from a box which stood on the table, pushed the box towards his visitors, and drew out a silver matchbox. What are the facts of this murder, Mr. Detective Sergeant? he asked quietly. Murder is not done without some object. As a rule, Eiskov accepted the offered cigar, passed the box to Melky, and while he lighted his selection, thought quietly. He was playing a game with the Japanese, and it was necessary to think accurately and quickly. And suddenly he made up his mind and assumed an air of candor. It's like this, Mr. Yada, he said. I may as well tell you all about it. You've doubtless read all about this Prad Street mystery in the newspapers. Well, now. Some very extraordinary developments have arisen out of the beginnings of that, it turns out. Melky sat by, disturbed and uncomfortable, while Eiskov reeled off a complete narrative of the recent discoveries to the suave-mannered, phlegmatic, calmly listening figure on the hearthrug. He did not understand the detective's doings. It seemed to him the height of folly to tell a stranger, and an eastern stranger at that, all about the fact that there was a diamond worth eighty thousand pounds at the bottom of these mysteries and murders. But he discharged his own duties, and watched Yada intently, and failed to see one single sign of anything beyond ordinary interest in his impassive face. "'So there it is, sir,' concluded Eiskov. "'I've no doubt whatever that Chen Li called at Maltenius's shop to pay the rent, that he saw the diamond in the old man's possession, and swagged him for it.' That parcelet saw Chen Li slip away from that side door, and hearing of Maltanius's death, suspected Chen Li of it, and tried to blackmail him. That Chen Li poisoned parcelet, and that Chen Li himself was knifed for that diamond. Now, by whom? Cheng Li has disappeared. You suspect Cheng Li? asked Yara. I do, exclaimed Eiskov. A Chinaman, a diamond worth every penny of eighty thousand pounds. Ah! He suddenly lifted his eyes to Yara with a quick inquiry. How much do you know of these two? he asked. Little, beyond the fact that they were fellow students of mine, answered Yada. I occasionally visited them, occasionally they visited me. That is all. Dr. Pittery says they weren't brothers, suggested Eiskov. So I understood, assented Yada. Friends. You can't tell us anything about their habits, haunts, what they usually did with themselves when they weren't at the hospital, asked the detective. I should say that when they weren't at the hospital, they were at their house, reading, answered Yada, dryly. They were hard workers. Eiskov rose from his chair. 
"'Well, much obliged to you, sir,' he said. "'As your name was mentioned as some sort of friend of theirs, I came to you. "'Of course, most of what I've told you will be in all the papers tomorrow. "'If you should hear anything of this Chang Li, you'll communicate with us, Mr. Yada.' "'The Japanese smiled, openly. "'Most improbable, Mr. Detective Sergeant,' he answered. "'I know no more than what I have said. "'For more information, you should go to the Chinese legation.' "'Good idea, sir. Thank you,' said Eiskov. He bowed himself and Melky out. Once outside the street door, he drew his companion away towards a part which lay in deep shadow. Some repairing operations to the exterior of a block of houses were going on there. Underneath a scaffolding which extended over the sidewalk, Eiskov drew Melky to a halt. "'You no doubt wondered why I told that chap so much,' he whispered. "'Especially about the diamond. But I had my reasons.' and particularly for telling him about its value. "'It isn't what I should have done, Mr. Eiskoff,' said Melky. "'And it didn't ought to come out in the newspapers, neither. So I think. Tain't a healthy thing to let the public know that there's an eighty-thousand-pound diamond loose somewhere in London. And as to telling that slant-eyed fellow in there—' "'You wait a bit, my lad,' interrupted Eiskoff. "'I had my reasons, good uns. Now, look here. We're going to watch that door a while. If the Jap comes out, as I've an idea he will—' We're going to follow, and as you're younger and slimmer and less conspicuous than I am, if he should emerge, keep on the shadowy side of the street, at a safe distance, and follow him as cleverly as you can. I'll follow you. What new game's this? asked Melky. Never mind, replied Eiskoff. And if it does come to following, and he should take a cab, contrive to be near. There's a good many people about, and if you're careful, he'll never see you. And there— now, what did I tell you? He's coming out now. Be handy. More depends on it than you're aware of. Yada, seeing clearly in the moonlight which flooded that side of the street, came out of the door which they had left a few minutes earlier. His smart suit of grey tweed had disappeared under a heavy, fur-coloured overcoat. A black bowler hat surmounted his somewhat pallid face. He looked neither to right nor left, but walked swiftly up the street in the direction of the Euston Road, and when he had gone some thirty yards, Eiskov pushed Melky before him out of their retreat. "'You go first, he whispered. "'I'll come after you. Keep an eye on him. As far as you can. Didn't I tell you he'd come out when we'd left? Be wary.' Melky slipped away up the street on the dark side and continued to track the slim figure quickly advancing in the moonlight. He followed until they had passed the front of the hospital. A few yards further— and Yada suddenly crossed the road in the direction of the underground railway. He darted in at the entrance to the city-bound train, and disappeared, and Melky, uncertain what to do, almost danced with excitement until Eiskov came leisurely toward him. "'Quick! Quick!' exclaimed Melky. "'He's gone down there. City trains. He'll be off, unless you're on to him.' But Eiskov remained quiescent, and calmly relighted his cigar. "'All right, my lad,' he said. "'Let him go. Just now.' I've seen what I expected to see. End of chapter 29